the optimal life. So you have quite a story, and I want to go back to your childhood, and because that's really where it all started, of course. Right. You were born to parents who were both deaf. Yes. What is that like? Uh, talk to us about that. How do you how do you even start learning from them in the household? What's the dynamic like? Well, pretty much right off the bat, you are their ears and their voice. Um, I didn't have toys like a typical child. I, I was really taught to interpret. I was making phone calls at four or five years old. I interpreted my parents' divorce at five years old. Um, you really do become responsible for your parents and you grow up pretty quick. So, but you must not have thought any, when you're at such a young age, did you know that your situation was different or did you think that this is how all kids had it? Well, I knew it was different because my parents were the only deaf individuals in the whole family dynamic. So my grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, my cousins were all about 10, 15 years older than me, but they could all hear. So I knew that it was a hearing world out there and that my situation was different, but it was normal for me, if that makes sense. Mm. Okay. So then at five years old, your parents end up divorcing. Yes. And you were living with... Your mother, your father, were you going back and forth or just strictly your mother? I, I was living with my mother. I would see my father occasionally on weekends, semi-regularly. Uh, my mother had married a man who talked her into selling the house that we had, that my father had left us. And he pretty much put us in a roach-infested apartment and took all the money and left, but not without abusing both her and I before that so how old are you six at this point yeah i'm about uh, like seven seven and a half and when you say he abused he was both physically and sexually abusive yes he was physically abusive to her but sexually abusive to me i i don't know if he was sexually abusive to her i don't know what their dynamic was that way what what when when that's happening at such a young age Again, you knew that that was not right at six, seven yes, years old. I, I I felt like it was wrong. And he explained it by he wanted to show me love that he wanted to express that he cared about me is what he said to me. And he was hard of hearing. He could hear, but he was also he could also sign. So he was hearing impaired, but he wasn't deaf. And what would you be doing? Would you be trying to? fight it off or you would just be going along with it because you were so young i would cry and but i didn't really fight um but i did tell my dad that i didn't like things that he was doing and my father was um recovering from a very bad motorcycle accident but he he also had threatened him not to come near me and after that, he had left me alone, but he had already taken off. You know, he was taken off and he was gone. He left you alone, but the damage had been done. I mean, right, right. You could never take that back. Exactly. How did that did that 
haunt you as you started getting a little bit older? Did that manifest in some nasty, dark ways? Well, I continued to just keep surviving. And my mother became a very abusive alcoholic. So all these things just kept getting buried as I moved along. It really wasn't something I dwelled on because then I had to take care of my mother who now is an alcoholic and she was gone sometimes days at a time. She would spend our food stamps to buy alcohol and she, um, what, what was it? Uh, what was it Shirley that caused your mother to really start spiraling? Was it that, was it the divorce itself? I think it was a combination. She was um, a deaf child who was hidden in the bedroom when people came over. And she was always taught that, she, you know, she wasn't like everyone else. She didn't, she wasn't taught self-confidence. So she always fought with my father. She always thought he was having affairs if he was 10 minutes late from work or things. So she was always an insecure person to begin with. And I think the divorce and then him leaving us and in, in very bad conditions, I think she turned to drinking. But when they're fighting, too, again, I'm just trying to paint the picture. They're not really yelling at each other, correct? Oh, yeah, they're yelling. They're, they're yelling. Be, even though they're yelling, even though that they can't even they can't really hear each oh, other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, deaf people are very vocal. They're very loud when especially if they're angry. They're loud. They they but they they're loud just to get it off their chest. They know that the other person, if both, two deaf people are yelling at each other, they can't technically hear each other. I mean, maybe I'm being no. I think ignorant. no, they can't hear each other. But I think it's just uh, instinct, I guess. You know, mm. I I would imagine I right. You can just tell really by the body language, <laughs> the body language, the facial expressions. Oh yeah, the, the vein popping out of the forehead. You yeah. know that the other person's. <laughs> Not exactly. Right. So your mother became extremely abusive toward the most innocent person in her life, which was you. Yeah, I think she she would say things like she wished she never had me. She only had me to try to save the marriage. She, I think she kind of blamed me for him leaving. And then, you know, she had a string of boyfriends in between the age of like my age of like eight and 13. Um, and she kind of resented having me, mm. I believe. And I, I helped her as far as when the social security check would come in, I helped her try, you know, write checks out for the landlord and, you know, she would take the uh, food stamps, sell them for alcohol. It was, it was, it was, when she'd come home, she if she was drunk, she'd be very abusive. Not if not when she was sober. When she was sober, she'd actually say she's sorry. But when she was drunk, yeah, there was times I was I would be at the hospital because she would hit me until the until like my jaw would go into a lock mode, and that was kind of and my body would start to shake, and then she'd get scared and she would literally take me to the hospital and. Back then, they really didn't do anything about child abuse. They would wrap me in hot blankets until I calmed down, and then they would send me home with her. Wow. There were times that she came home raped that I'd have to go to the hospital and talk to her. That was talk for her. Interpret that, that happened twice. There was a time. There she was times that she came home raped. Was that what yeah, you said? Twice. She told me she was raped, so we had to go to the hospital. Yes. Raped by who? I I don't know. She was out all hours of the night. 
you know, she, you know, I didn't even ask because it was just the situation I had to deal with. We went to the hospital and they went go through, you know, uh, the situation. Like she was at a bus stop once and there was one time she was pregnant. I had to go to an abortion clinic with her and interpret for her. And like I said, when you are a child of a deaf parent, and I I don't want to say everybody, but most people, and I I guess that's why CODA exists. It's a support group uh, for children of deaf, adult children of deaf parents. Um, it, It is your responsibility to take care of them. You, you know. became an adult at a very young age. Yes. Yes. I mean, eight, very young age. eight, nine, ten years old, you were the the woman of the house. Yes. Absolutely. You were there to take care of your mother as best as you could, take care of yourself. There was no one there to take care of you. No. You were raising yourself, but under the the power and aggression and instability of a of a, it sounds like a parent that was struggling with mental health mental illness, drugs, alcohol, all that. Yes. And she ended up taking her own life when I was 13 years old. I wanted to get to that um, because that's absolutely horrific. And and it sounds like it could have been even worse because I believe she tried to take yours as well. Absolutely. Yes, she did. What, What happened? Take us back to that day if you could. Well, I came home from my dad's that weekend and I had noticed that she had lost some weight and she smelled bad, like she hadn't showered or anything. And she kind of seemed confused. And when I rang the doorbell, which would set off lights in the apartment, she opened the door and looked down at me and said, Shirley's not home. And I'm like, I am Shirley, I'm your daughter. So she let me in. And I remember the landlord came over that day because he was saying that they were going to change the heating system and we would be able to control our own heat. So the rent would come down, but we'd have to pay our heat. I believe that that's what was I had to explain to her. And she had flipped out. She's you're trying to cheat me. You're trying like she just went nuts. So I told the landlord to just go home and I. I would talk to her and I would explain everything. So he left and I noticed, I was like, you need to eat. And we never really had food. We always had that government cheese, big block of cheese in our fridge, but we had like milk and pudding mix. And I remember making pudding and jello for her. And I wanted her to eat because I can tell that she had lost weight. She was, she was just like delusional or something was, something was off. Well, let me just stop you. I'm sorry. I just have to ask. You you knock on the door and she says to you, Shirley's not, uh, you're not home. And you're like, yeah, I am home. I am her. And and right away, are you, have you seen this kind of behavior from her before? Or was this? No. Okay. So you already knew something was really, really wrong right right away. Okay. Yes. Yes. And it wasn't until I was an adult and started reading about alcohol that I actually understand what happened to her now. But, um, because the autopsy, like when she had killed herself, she had stabbed herself repeatedly in the stomach and throat. And the people in the basement were breaking in, trying to get in because they heard all the screaming and yelling. And I somehow got to the door. She had, she like grabbed me by the hair. She was punching me in the face. She was sticking her fingers down my throat, pulling my throat. Out. It was just, it was 
really, really a terrifying night. And the people downstairs, I, I got to the door somehow. I don't even know how I got to the door. And I, they took me downstairs right away and we called the police and my mother had passed. She, she, she died. Actually the police came and left because they wouldn't go in the apartment because I wouldn't go with them. And I was like, no, I was terrified. And they said they couldn't go in there without me. They actually left. And my, it took my father, I don't know, like an hour or so to get there from the South side of Chicago. He lived in Hegwish and she was already gone when we called the police back. So I, I have no idea why they didn't go in, but um, so, so you, there's, she starts having an episode that evening. Oh, it was actually in two in the morning. Sorry. Uh, we went to bed. I actually went to sleep with a cross under my pillow because I was afraid. And, um, I woke up and, and she asked me to sleep with her that night. So I did. And when I woke up around two in the morning, I noticed she wasn't in bed and she was laying, I mean, she was sitting by the kitchen window, staring out the window and I tapped her on the shoulder and then she got up and she gave me a big hug and said, I'm sorry. And I, she hugged me so tight that I was pushing away. And then she just kind of snapped and started hitting me. And, and that's when the whole thing started. What was going on with her uh, that evening? Do, do you well, know? What I, what the, when I, I had to go identify her body at the morgue because I guess that was my job. And at 13, I have no idea why someone else didn't do that. But um, I remember the autopsy saying that she hadn't drank for three days. She didn't drink. There was no alcohol in her body for three days. So what I think she was trying to do was quit drinking because quitting drinking can be more dangerous than quitting drugs. And you can lose your mind. You can get delusional. You can you know, you, you, you're not supposed to withdraw off alcohol unless you're in a hospital. So I think that's what happened to her. I'm, I'm not a doctor, but after studying it and reading it, it's what I think happened. Um, but at 13, I, I felt pretty guilty because I was the one taking care of her and yeah, that had to be so, I don't even know what the right words are. But so confusing for you, uh, a whirlwind of emotions that are occurring in that, in that at that period of time. You come back, she's completely off. You guys end up seeming to kind of go to bed together. You wake up in the middle of the night. She's staring out the window. Something doesn't seem right. She then kind of attacks you or starts attacking you after you like tapped her on the shoulder. Right. When she attacked you, was did she go for a knife or was it just physical with her hands? It was just with her hands. So she was punching me in the face, sticking her fingers down my throat. She bashed my head into like this fish tank we had. She she was just we were. I just remember my the grip she had on my hair was. I don't know how to explain it. I just know it was super tight. I couldn't even move my head. And when the lights started going off in the apartment from the people ringing the doorbell, trying to break in downstairs from the people in the basement. It distracted her a little bit. And then I let them in. I turned around. I, 
saw that she had grabbed a knife and she started stabbing herself. And we went down in the basement. Wow. You blamed yourself, didn't you? I did for a long time. I did. I, I felt like I had failed her. How do you, at 13 years old, start moving forward to some kind of healing? Well, I didn't. I, I still had to stay in survival mode. My father had was remarried, and my stepmother would not let me eat there or wash my clothes there. So she would, like my dad would put down a plate of food. She'd take it and throw it in the sink, and she'd go storm off in the bedroom, and he'd go storm off in the bedroom after her. And there was always constant fighting about me being in the house. So I just told my dad, I said, you know what? Don't worry. I'm just going to leave and go out. And, you know, I started making friends at my new school and I just would hang out late at night. And I had a half sister. They had had a kid years before they were married. So my sister, my half sister was seven years old when that happened. And she would leave the window open for me to come home late at night. And I got a job from the local grocery, the, the man who had the local grocery store in Hegwish, I asked him if I could work for him. And he said, yeah. And he would give me $10 a day. Um, and he ended up being like my only adult friend that I actually leaned on. And uh, that $10, I would eat out on that $10 every day. And I would save the change to do my laundry at the end of the week at a laundromat. Well, he started molesting me and he molested me for two years. But and how you're only 13? I was only 13. It went from 13 to 15 years old. Yeah. So I was already in a whole nother trauma thing going on. You know, it, it was all these things always going on that I, I just couldn't even stop and really heal or focus on one thing because I was constantly and I started drinking a lot and I myself started smoking a lot of pot. And I, surely I just can't imagine that you were ever able to trust uh, everywhere you turned. There was violence and negativity. It seems like it, it your first 15 years, at least of your life was filled with trauma on the daily basis. Right. And when I was 15, uh, there was a man who was 25 who would come into the store all the time, play video games and, and talk to me and, he had told me that he really started having feelings, feelings for me. He loved me. He wanted to take me away from everything. And I believed him. And he said that he was sterile. He couldn't have any kids. And I didn't have anything to worry about. So I trusted him. And I got pregnant about four months later. And wow. then he was gone. And I had to give my son up for adoption. So... Yeah, trust was kind of a hard one for me. <laughs> wow. Do you do you talk to your son? Yes, I actually uh found his parents when I was when he was about 26. Uh oh he's, a, he's and I wrote them a letter first cuz I didn't want to step on their toes, so I said if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to meet him. So um oh, we, wow. we yeah, so we talk basically just on the phone every once in a while. We we don't, we're not super close, but he doesn't get off the phone without saying, I love you, mom. So do you, this is, this is deep. Do you, do you regret having to give him up for adoption when you were in your adult life? Regret? No, 
that's not the emotion I would describe. Um, the sadness that I had to, you know, sadness that I couldn't raise him. Regret, no, because I went on to live here and there and, and I, until I was 18 and I got a job with the Steelworkers Union and got my own apartment, my own car, um, I was still like in a bad dating pattern. I was drinking a lot. I was, you know, all over the place. So there was no place for a kid to be. So I regret is not what I felt. That's not the emotion that you feel. No. But you do feel a, a void or a sense of sadness that you couldn't have been there for your child. Yes, absolutely. Because the relationship that I have with my adult children now and my grandchildren is just such a close, beautiful relationship. We're, we're so close. We laugh. We travel together. We, you know, my son and his wife come over for Tuesday night, movie night, and my daughter and I text all day and every day. And we, you know, I'm just really close to my children. And I, I, I'm sad that I couldn't have that with him, yes. You, you know, you mentioned that, it was just one thing after another. You couldn't even really mourn the loss of your mother. You you had to keep your head above water. Your father, his wife or whatever she was, she didn't want you in the house. And the the, the other guy who's molesting you at thirteen, uh, right. having a becoming impregnated at fifteen, having to give a baby up for adoption. He's gone. I mean, all these things in a really weird way, though. It's almost like all these other bad things that were happening around you. It was just so much that you never had chance to really feel sad. You you never had a chance to be. You had a really right. you were yeah, you were a survivor right. survival mode every right. day. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of uh, hard for people to understand. But yeah, I I really did not deal with any of the emotions. I just kept going. Partying with friends was kind of a, a outlet for me. Music was huge. Music helped me a lot. Um, yeah, it, it, and even at 18, when I had my own apartment, I actually then got into cocaine because I had a lot of money. I was working, making a lot of money, and uh, I started getting into You were cocaine making a lot of money doing what? I was a machinist for a steelworkers union, so I was making a good penny, and my apartment, my studio apartment didn't cost much. My car payment wasn't that much, you know, and I... I, I mean, I wasn't rich, but I had a, a, a good amount of money in my pocket and uh, I got down to like 80 pounds. I, it, it made me feel so good. And then, you know, it, until it doesn't make you feel good anymore and you're crashing. And uh, so I had gotten myself off of that, which is I look back like I don't even know how I did it. But I, I had a boyfriend at the time that was telling, it was said, I'm going to tell your grandmother who she's who I lived with when I was pregnant. And I didn't want to make her disappointed. And I think that that's when he said, he now, was this your mother's mom or your father's mom? No, my father's mom. Okay. Yeah. And my father and I, when, when I was 18, he actually got a divorce from her and my father and I, you know, we had a good relationship 
believe it or not. I always loved my father. I He'd see me on the street. He'd give me $20. I know that he wasn't a great dad, but I know that he loved me. And again, being deaf, it's it's a different dynamic for them. They, right. they see things differently. So you didn't have time to mourn or be sad or all, any of these things. But at some point, I would have to imagine all of those feelings do come flying in because you can only suppress it for so long. Oh, yeah, that was a tough one when it did. I was 23 years old and I had gotten engaged to my children's father. And um, he was a good provider. He was a good guy. Someone I actually trusted and felt safe with as much as I could trust anyone. And I had a nervous breakdown. I just, I couldn't even get out of bed. I was more terrified than I'd ever been in my life, believe it or not. Even through all the things I went through, I literally thought I was going to lose my mind. I was going to go crazy. I was having panic attacks constantly. I, I just stopped going to work. I just didn't go to work. Three months, I didn't go to work. And I you couldn't get out of bed any, every day, almost every day. I it no, and they wanted me to see a therapist for some reason. I was always against going to see a therapist, and I I just never did. And uh, I think for his sake, I I slowly like he kept saying we got to go out. You you know he would say, "Come on, I'll drive." And then one day he was like, "No, you have to drive." And you know he just kept trying to get me out of the house trying to tell me everything is okay. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, I want to be okay. I want to be married. I want to marry this guy and have a normal life. And um, I wanted to be okay. And I didn't want to see a therapist. So I, I picked up my first book, The Feel Good Handbook. <laughs> and that was my first first book on my way to healing. No. So you, you the book was the book was your first step. It was my first step. It had a lot of like workbook. I, I can't remember it very clearly, but I remember it teaching me that I the way I was feeling was normal. That it was okay that I wasn't alone. There's millions of people struggling out there. And I when I didn't feel alone, then I thought, okay, if this is normal, then I can come out of it. And I started doing worksheets and of course a lot of the stuff I wrote about had to do with my mom. And I started to, I didn't even cry about my mother's death and probably until I was like 28, 29 years old. Wow. So, um, yeah. You, I, had, you had so much built up emotion and trauma and things that were, it was so buried because you had no choice to bury it, that it manifested into some crazy out of control uh, like you said, breakdown into yeah. your mid twenties, yeah. uh, a, a complete debilitating breakdown. Yeah, it really was. It really was. So what are some of the things, how, how do you go from that? You pick up the book. How do you go from all that to start really changing the mind, changing who you are, getting to a healthy state? I mean, this I is, I, I could not stop devouring books after that. I was like, okay. And then I, yeah, even the power of positive thinking, which is a small step, but it's a tremendous step at the same time. I try to tell people that the process of changing your mind, it's a very simple process. It's just not always easy. 
to do, but it is a simple process. But it, it, it and, and, you know, I, I did Reiki. I did, I did all kinds of searching, all kinds of alternative healing. Um, what does that mean getting, to be a Reiki master? What exactly do you do? I work with people's energy. I ship their energy. I clear out their energy. Um, I just in the last five, six years started getting messages while I uh, am while I'm in a session, a Reiki session. Uh, people love Reiki. I love Reiki. It's just a way of working with your energy. It's a calming energy. And if you can get out of your own way, you can heal. So it's kind of a way of getting your you out of your own way so your body can heal. Mm-hmm. It, you got to get yourself out of your way for any type of healing, not just energy healing. So you know, that's what meditation is about, you know, kind of shutting down your thoughts. And that's what made me start to believe in, in the spirit and um, and manifestations and the laws of attraction. Because if I'm in control to change my mind, that means my mind does not control me. So there's another being there. You know, that's what started me going, wow, if I can control my mind, that means my mind is not me. So that was a mind blowing experience in itself, you know. Was there a and point then, in time? Was there a specific point in time where you started hitting like a breakthrough where you remember aha? Mm-hmm. And if so, what did yeah. that look like? I, I think it was an exercise, some spiritual guide had, you know, um, like a, just an into someone, an intuitive was talking to me and. And I was talking about not, you know, she was telling me how I didn't have enough self-worth. I didn't believe in myself. I didn't love myself enough. And I, I couldn't really understand that. But then she had me go back to me as a child. And she's go back to one of those times that you're getting hit and beaten and I and she said, what do you want to say to that child? What do you want? And I was like, oh, my God, I just want to grab that child and say, look, you're going to be okay. You're strong. You're powerful. You have done so much. You've survived so much. And it was me telling this child I love so much, like, you're going to be okay. I just wanted to comfort her. But then realizing, wow, that's me, you know, and most of us would do that for anybody who is suffering the same struggles that we're suffering, we just don't do that for ourselves. You see? So once you start to realize, wow, that kid is me, and I would go and and hug that kid and tell that kid, I love you, then you start to go, wow, that's me. I, I can love me. I can, you know, really start to heal. I think that was the beginning. Mm. And how old were you? Were you in your 30s at that point? Uh close probably 28 29 yeah. somewhere in there uh, i had my children at 25 and 27 so it was they were still little when i was going through things like that so and then from all of that uh blossomed this red leaf alternative healing <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. When did you, I, when did you, I, I you actually start wrote that? a book. I wrote a book and it's coming out. It, it's in the publisher's hands and it's coming out in October. Um, Sweet Freedom Whispered in My Ear. It's my whole story. It's, it's, it's just everything, all the emotions I felt, everything I went through. It's, it's a, and at first when I wrote it, I, it was just like a dump. And my publisher was like, Ooh, it's a hard read. You got to, at every end of the chapter, you've got to put something in there to, to talk about what you learned or what tools you used. Or, she's like, we need breathers in every chapter. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. She goes, no, because you're in a different barometer. You know, people who have been through, who have been through what you've been through is on a different barometer. You're not going to look at it that way. But so she kind of helped me shape the book, which is nice. And, um, so now we're working on things like the author bio and things like that. We're wrapping it up. So I'm really so you, excited. About you consider yourself a mindset coach. I do. Yeah. Okay. And what I, exactly, what, what are some of the things that you're helping your clients with when you're talking mindset, what are some of the things that you're putting into place for them? I have a, a three month course that has weekly lessons with daily activities so um taking ownership is huge you know knowing that anything that's happening to us as adults that we're allowing to happen we are creating it we are allowing it once you can take ownership and realize that nobody can treat you bad unless you let them right nobody can and and you can't you shouldn't let your abusers who are no longer in your life keep abusing you there. If you keep living that you're still giving them the power to abuse you. So a very profound thought for me is the past does not even exist. It, it's not there. It doesn't exist unless you give it thought, right? Otherwise it's gone. It, it's not there. So when we want to give that thought, we want to give it power, we're keeping ourselves in a place of anxiety and depression when we can shift our mind and be more present. And then if we don't like where we're at presently, then we need to shape our minds to create a better future. Wow. That's powerful. Thank you. And that yeah, makes a lot of I, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Red leaf it, alternative healing. Right. Shirleybuck.com, which we'll link here in the show notes so people can go find you on the website. They can connect with you. You do consultations, all those kind of things. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, this is heavy stuff. I mean, I cannot imagine what you've had to go through, but I would also now imagine that you're pouring all your blood, sweat, and tears and all the experiences that have shaped you into the woman you are today into these people, other people that need this type of help that, yes. that didn't have, that didn't have a, a Shirley to, to, to guide them. You know, you didn't have a Shirley to guide you. So now you're hoping that you could guide other people that are struggling with traumas of, of probably a wide range of issues. Yeah. Um, that is my goal. So, so we said shirleybuck.com. I, I have a, I do have a final question for you, but before we get there, um, Talk to us about where people could find you anywhere else, social media, uh, other websites, et cetera. Um, well, I, I do have a private Facebook group, but I only know how to get the <laughs> invitation, but it's Red Leaf Healing. 
And sure. I, I, you can you can ask to join it, and um, I can let you in. That that's the Red Leaf Healing. That's not the Red Leaf Alternative Healing page. It's just Red Leaf Healing, and that's a community page where I blog on, and um, other people, you know, may ask questions on there or message me through there. Uh, ShirleyBuck.com is my website. And, um, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I, I guess those are the ways to, there's ways people could find you though. If they do, they dig hard enough, they'll find you. I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you can look it up on Google red leaf alternative healing. You'll be, uh, you can even probably put keywords in and find me, but yes. Yes. So let's finish it off with, uh, with the following. Someone's listening. They're going through something. Maybe it's been a similar experience that you've gone through. Maybe it's not, but it's traumatic in its own right. And they can't fathom moving forward. They can't. The days are dark. Uh, Their world comes crashing down. What kind of low-hanging fruit advice would you have for them if you could talk to them right now? And I promise you, if you if you do the work to change your mind, which is a simple process, it's it's not easy. But if you do the work, it, I promise you, you can be okay. I I know this because I am. I'm I'm not only just okay. I'm happy. I'm just I'm joyful. I enjoy life. I'm not sad. I I am not fearful. And and you can you can be there too. I promise you that. Beautiful stuff. Shirley, uh, continued blessings to you. Really appreciate connecting with you. Thank you so much for having me.